afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Rob Port here on 970 WDAY. Good afternoon, Atil. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. It feels a little bit weird to be back at work today. That that weird Tuesday off in the middle of the work week is just is just odd. Yeah, it feels like <laughs> uh, it feels like Monday. Yeah, it really does. It and I like- guess I guess we're doing everything like a Monday because I'll be on with Jay after the show. Like I usually am on Mondays. Oh, so you're just confusing me even further now. Yeah. Well, that's just what we're gonna do. I guess it's uh, it's Monday, except Wednesday is Friday now. I don't know. It's Monday, except it's also Wednesday. It. <laughs> we uh, our first guest. We're gonna get right into it. Our first guest, Public Service Commissioner Julie Fedorchek. Julie, did you have a good holiday? I did. I had a great holiday. How about you, Rob? I did pretty good. Pretty good. It's a good one overall. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this rail inspection program. Obviously, an important issue for the region. Rail capacity is hugely important to North Dakota's major industries, agriculture, obviously, and energy. Um, and you know, a few years ago, we were having, we were getting a lot of headlines about oil, train derailments, oil train derailments specifically. And of course, mm-hmm. we had that, we had that very um, ugly incident in Castleton, which scared a lot of people, rightfully so. Uh, there were other incidents in the region, one near Heimdall, um, and that got people thinking about rail safety. Now, one thing the state of North Dakota did is they passed, during the 2015 legislative session, uh, they passed uh, legislation to fund a rail inspection program, but now it's looking like that may not be renewed. I'm quoting here from the Associated Press, the pilot program, which includes two rail safety inspectors and a manager to supplement inspections by the Federal Railroad Administration, is halfway through its four-year run this month and likely will be scrapped in two years, said House Majority Leader Al Carlson and his Republican Senate counterpart, Rich Wardner. They said the program duplicates federal and industry inspection programs and is not needed as the bulk of the state's crude oil is now moved by pipelines. I think it will run its course, and when it's done, my gut feeling is we won't re-up it, Wardner said. Uh, uh, Carlson, for his part, uh, called it an overreaction. Uh, he says uh, it's it's something that, that once we started, everybody wants to keep it, and that's just government. Now, Julie, I, I know that this was sort of a – this was an important thing for you. This is something that you pushed for. Do you agree with the majority leaders? Has this run its course? No, I really don't agree with the majority leaders, and I think once they sit down with me, which I'm hoping they will – um, and look at what we're doing, the philosophy we've taken, how we're spending that money, and the results that we're seeing. I think that they'll come to the same conclusion that I have and the commission has, that this is a valuable program for the state. It um, improves the safety of the rail system in North Dakota, which is vital, as you said, to our state's leading industries, especially energy and agriculture. It runs through the heart of most North Dakota communities and really is um, is finding some important things. And it isn't a duplication of federal efforts. It's an increase in inspections. We're not following those federal inspectors around looking at the same things. We are going and actually increasing the number of inspections that are occurring on the system in North Dakota and finding defects and violations in what the railroads are doing uh, that could lead to uh, derailments and dangerous accidents down the road and really improving the safety and the efficiency of that rail system overall. So I think once we go through all that and show them the record, I, I tried to get that time with a 
uh, Al Carlson this um, session, and he didn't have time. So I'll be doubling back with them during the interim and uh, making efforts to have those conversations with the majority leaders and other legislators as well, just so they better understand what we're doing and have the facts. 701-293-9000, You can certainly email talk at WDAY.com if you have any comments or questions for uh, Julie Fedorchek. I, I wanted, first of all, the, the program has an annual budget of about $300,000, and that comes from a tax paid for by the railroads. It's a tax actually on their diesel fuel. So we're not actually talking about a hugely expensive program here. I mean, $300,000 is a lot of money, but in terms of the overall state budget, it's not a huge amount of money. It's not coming out of your income tax. It's a tax that the railroads pay. So I, I really don't see why it's that controversial. Tell us about some of the success that this program's had, because you, you've said it's been successful. Give us some details. Uh, shine, shine a sure. light on that for us. A- absolutely. So we've had the inspectors certified and, and operating on them uh, on their own for um, about a year, a year and a half, uh, and. Since that time, the mechanical inspector who looks at all the mechanical systems, the wheels, the brakes, all the mechanical systems on the railroad, he has um, worked and found about 875 defects. So those are smaller things that the railroad has done that is not in accordance with the safety practices that need to be fixed because they could result in a problem down the road. Uh, and he's also found um, about 30 38 violations, which those are more serious issues, which if left unresolved could definitely lead to a derailment. Um, So those are, or an injury, those are, you know, substantial issues. As an example, our mechanical inspector was out in Tioga at a rail terminal um, testing some or inspecting some uh, crude oil cars in January. He found a train that had already been inspected by BNSF inspectors. It was cleared for going the next day. It was loaded with crude oil, and he inspected that train and found 11 cars with broken side bearings. Those 11 cars were taken out of service because they were not safe. That train was scheduled to, uh, to go across the entire state of North Dakota east from Tioga through uh, on the eastern route. And so there's an example of a crude oil train, one of the more hazardous, uh, that had broken um, broken cr- tanker cars, the new version of the tanker cars, and quite honestly, that's broken side bearings is an issue that the FRA has taken seriously. They sent that, that um, error, those um, defects for additional inspection are looking nationwide at those cars as having, like, this might be something that more of these cars have uh, system-wide. And so that's the type of thing that wasn't caught by the railroad inspectors themselves that took a third-party inspector to look at and pull out of um, out of operation. So we, it's hard to prove a negative. You can't prove exactly that we have prevented um, uh, something from happening, but we're finding issues that could lead to derailments and uh, working with industry to address those. That's the point of the program, and that's why I think for less than $600,000 a biennium or less than $300,000 a year in tax that's already been paid and collected by the state, that's a good investment, in my opinion. And I think legislators, when they see that and hear about it um, outside of newspaper articles and interviews, I think they will recognize that, too, or that's my hope. 701 email talk at WDAY.com. The, the federal government already does this through the Federal Railroad Administration, as we've talked about, and that is one of the criticisms, I guess, from the people who don't like the program, 
is that this is a duplication of, of, of efforts, and I think you've addressed that, saying, no, we're increasing the number of inspections happening. But, but what about people who, who say that this is something the federal government should be doing, like this is supposed to be their job, and if the state takes it over, what we're doing is obligating ourselves to something that the federal government is, is really supposed to be doing? Well, I think it's uh, this, certainly that's one way of looking at it, but they've had this program in place to do in cooperation with the states for 30 years. So it has been a partnership in many other places for many years because the FRA has recognized they don't have the resources to do it thoroughly. It's a complicated system. In North Dakota, we have 3,000 miles of track, for example, and in in our state, the um, track carries the highest density of any track in the country. So there's certain routes that are high density where they carry like more than 40 million gross tons a year. North Dakota has some of that track. So it is highly used. It's, it, go, it goes through a lot of wear and tear. It goes through the center of our community. So I think it's responsible for the state to recognize we too have a role because we have the greatest interest for on behalf of our people for keeping those trains on the tracks. Well, yeah. So I, I mean, we, think it's got a joint. It's a joint effort, clearly. Well, in my well I, I agree with you. I, and I mean, listen, we can't ever make anything perfect. No human endeavor is ever going to be free from error. Derailments, unfortunately, are going to happen no matter what we do, because that's just the way of that's the world. Correct. But it mm-hmm. seems to me like doing these inspections for six hundred thousand dollars a biennium is not a lot of money for some peace of mind. I I don't know. That's the way I look at it. Julie, thanks for your time. Certainly appreciate it. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate the time, too. That's Public Service Commissioner Julie Fedorchek. This is the Rob Report right here on 970 WDAY. We'll be back right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. Rob Report here on 970 WDAY. 702 Hey, in the next segment, Congressman Kevin Kramer, because it's Wednesday, is going to be joining us for his uh, weekly town hall segment. So if you've got comments, you've got questions uh, about health care or anything else under the sun, you can certainly call in and uh, ask the congressman. I'm sure he'll have answers for you. Hopefully he will. Um, point two, I've been getting beat up on the editorial page the last few days. Oh, boy, what did you do this time? Well, I wrote a column on Sunday, and it was um, it was about not so much the health care debate itself, but, you know, so, sort of the way we're talking about it, I, I guess. And it's the, the headline was, agree with me or people will die. And I was referring to Senator Elizabeth Warren and, you know, comments that she made on the Senate floor, you know, basically saying that this is this is, you know, there's going to be. I forget what exactly she said, but basically she said, you know, people are going to die because of the health care policy. And, and I thought it was just it was just ridiculous. And anyway, uh, there's been a lot of letters to the editor and, and they're, they're saying that, that somehow I am suggesting that if, if we if we, somebody loses their health insurance, that they're going to be less more likely to die. And, and I would agree. Statistically, I would say that's probably accurate. If you don't have health coverage, you're probably you're probably not going to get the health care you need, and you're probably more likely to die or, or have a shorter lifespan. I, I would say that statistically that is probably true, but that's not necessarily the argument I'm making. Saying that, 
oh, you know, the Republican health care plan is going to kill people is irresponsible. I mean, I mean, what, what set me off, there was a protest outside of Senator Hovind's office. Uh, what was it last week now? I'm forgetting the holidays got me all messed up. I think it was last week. Uh, and, and one of them, one of them, uh, one of the protesters was holding up a sign and it said, uh, they want to kill you for money. That was the sign. And, and that's what, that was sort of my jumping off point. Like how can, I mean, we have everything from protesters standing on a sidewalk in Fargo, North Dakota, outside Senator Hovind's office to Senator Elizabeth Warren on the floor of the Senate using this same rhetoric and it's ridiculous it's irresponsible it's stupid it's not connected to reality because you could say this about just about any policy right i mean if we're going to apply this standard to that you know what also kills people is financial hardship that's a real thing people who live their lives you know paycheck to paycheck who live their lives with a lot of financial stress live shorter lives they have higher rates of heart attacks. They have higher rates of stroke. They have higher rates of all sorts of problems. And you know what Obamacare did? Obamacare raised the cost of health insurance. The cost of health insurance went up faster than it was either way, uh, anyway, because of Obamacare. So, so what I could do is I could sit here and I could tell all of you people on the left, all of you Democrats who think Obamacare was the best thing in the world, who thought it was great, who thought it should be rammed down the throats of the American public, that Obamacare killed people. I can tell you that because it brought financial hardship to a lot of people in America. It caused them to lose their existing insurance. It caused them to pay more for health insurance. Now, I could say that. Now, the thing, though, is that that wouldn't be fair. That would not be a fair talking point. And I would not deploy that talking point because it's inane. It's childish. It's juvenile. Of course, Democrats weren't trying to kill people with Obamacare. Of course that wasn't their intent. They legitimately thought the policy was going to help. Now, they were wrong. It's turned out to be awful policy. I think even a lot of Democrats admit that, which is why they're saying, you know, let's fix Obamacare. Let's not repeal it, right? That's the debate that they're having. And inherent in that argument is that they don't want to repeal, or excuse me, they're acknowledging that there is a problem with the status quo with Obamacare. But, but, but this is the problem, because we are not that far removed from a guy who would show up and hold signs at left-wing protests deciding that he was going to go to a baseball field in Virginia and open fire on a group of Republicans with the intent of killing them. That happened. And yet we have a senator, a U.S. senator on the floor of the Senate accusing the political opposition of killing people. We have protesters standing on the sidewalk in Fargo suggesting that Republicans want to kill you for money. I don't care what political persuasion you are, that's unacceptable. And if that if that's going to earn me criticism for calling that out from the left, I don't know. I don't think I'm the problem. I think some of the folks on the left need some self-examination. Congressman Kevin Kramer coming up next. This is the Rob Report on 970 WDAY. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob. Report on 970 WDAY. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. It's Wednesday, our weekly town hall segment with Congressman Kevin Kramer. Kevin, how's it going? Hey, it's going well. Thanks, Rob. How are you? I'm doing well. Did you uh, have a nice holiday? 
I did. Thank you. It was uh, just great to be be home. We Chris Abel and I did a little hiking out in Fort Abraham Lincoln State Park yesterday morning, and went out for breakfast, and then uh, you know got ready for the heat. <laughs> and then, yeah. And then we're you know delighted to have some rain in Bismarck in the area. That was that was probably the bonus of the evening, uh, more so than fireworks. But anyway, we're it's always great to celebrate liberty. Tell me about clean coal technology because I'm, sure. I'm reading this. I'm reading this article from Amy Dalrymple in the Bismarck Tribune, um, and it's it's that the lead is President Donald Trump says he wants to save coal, but his budget proposal includes steep cuts for research that could advance the industry. What what's going on? I, I thought Trump was a coal guy. <laughs> yeah. So a couple of things. First of all, to be fair to President Trump, he's done more for coal and and uh, all forms of energy in you know the first few months of his presidency than um, other presidents have done damage to them just by rolling back lots of the regulations and and working toward the ones he can and you know signing congressional review acts and things like that, um, working on things like WOTUS and and other things, but. That said, on the research and development side, that is the government spending side, he's been more consistent with his theme and his promises to cut the budget and lower the deficit and balance the budget. Um, and, and so the clash of those two things is now hit, right? So on the one hand, uh, you know, we, more local control, fewer regulations get out of the way of, uh, of business. And then on the other hand, uh, you know, you also don't subsidize the business. And so it's not a completely inconsistent notion. It's just sort of the clash of the two cultures. And, um, you know, the thing I've advocated for more than anything with the Department of Energy, and of course I've written a fair bit about this, including for the president, is, um, you know, let's just, let's have government funding for emerging technologies, but let's make it um, technology neutral. And so as long as we're still dealing in this sort of silo, silos of uh, government spending and silos of research and development at DOE, I guess we, have, we advocate for the things that are most important to our state. But, uh, but my ultimate policy desire would be if we're going to invest in emerging technologies, and I would submit it's, it's important for the government to do that. We wouldn't have fracking, but for early um, investment in, in that research and, and development. But... Um, you know, if we're going to do that, then let's remove the silos. Let's unleash the innovation. You know, work closely with the private sector and be technology neutral. So, in a nutshell, that's that's sort of my synopsis of the situation. I want to get to some emailed questions we have. If you want to join in, 701-293-9000, Open phones with Congressman Kevin Kramer. You can ask him about whatever you want. Uh, this email comes from uh, Tyler. He says, "Hi, Rob, Congressman Kramer." Uh, I'd like to know what Republicans have been doing the last several years since Obamacare passed. How can the House and Senate not have agreed to a replacement plan by now? Were all the Republicans assuming Hillary would win, so it was pointless to come up with a new plan? At a minimum, Republicans should have had an agreed plan in place, both in, uh, excuse me, an agreed plan in both the House and Senate with a list of concessions for negotiating with the Democrats. President Trump is being held back by his own party's lack of agreement, let alone the left. I say Congress gets no vacation until they get a replacement bill on the president's desk so he can continue to keep his promises to America, which he is doing all alone right now. That's Tyler from West Fargo, Congressman. Well, there's some there's some truth and validity to what Tyler's saying. Although I would say, 
with regard to the last, um, you know, seven years or really the four years that, that Obamacare has been fully implemented and prior to it, even to that, uh, members of the, the of Congress, especially the House Republicans, because we had a majority for, for six of those years, we did offer many um, replacement bills. Lots of them were... Uh, you know, on the on the docket, there were hearings. There were there were bills drafted. Um, we had lots of hearings on Obamacare over all of that time, and the Senate had some. But of course, remembering they weren't Republicans weren't in the majority of a good share of that time, so there there wasn't any interest in oversight of the failings of Obamacare on, on that side of the aisle. But we did do a lot of that in the House, and it's partly why we were able to craft and pass a, a replacement bill rather quickly. Now, I will say this. One, one of the things, and there's a lot of discussion right now sort of about the timeline of things, Rob, and, and, but one of the things that we always were doing before was we were having great success in the House, at least, in passing repeals of Obamacare. And President Trump campaigned on repealing Obamacare, but then he came. He was the one who sort of pushed the issue of a repeal and replace at the same time. And you might recall that, um, you know, after the election, probably prior to being sworn in, he, you know, he said, "No, I'd want to repeal, replace, or simultaneous." Might have even been before the election. So there were other Republicans as well, however, that wanted to do that. But um, he, he sort of forced that issue, and so that did become a bit of a complicating factor. Although it, it's also allowed us to use the budget reconciliation process, which means you can't do a full repeal, but you can, you know, repeal as we've said many times the the penalties for the individual and employer mandate, uh, repeal the taxes, anything related to spending or revenue, um, and then work on other policies uh, apart from it. Now, I would also say um, to, to, the, to Tyler's point, we've passed a number of bills that are apart from the the budget reconciliation. Some of the, the larger policy changes where we've had bipartisan support. I mean, w w with over 400 House votes, we passed antitrust legislation that puts insurance companies under antitrust laws that they previously have not been. It still aren't because the Senate hasn't taken that bill up. We passed a bill allowing association plans so small businesses could form associations or, you know, or restaurant, fake restaurant associations, for example, or broadcasters, or whatever it might be, could form associations across state lines and provide health insurance through an association plan, which is forbidden under Obamacare. We did that with bipartisan votes in the House. Uh, last week, we did some medical um, malpractice reforms of bipartisan in the House. The Senate, however, has not done any of those um, larger bills as yet, and that would require 60 votes in the Senate, so they're going to have a bit of an uphill climb on some of them, but not all of them. There are areas there, again, to Tyler's point, where I do think there's room for Democrats to work with Republicans as we did in the House. I think there's a chance for more of that even in the Senate, and, and we could get sort of to Tyler's point. But as far as having a bill coming in that was ready to go and, um, you know, you'd have the unanimous consent of the Republican Party, uh, clearly that hasn't taken place. But even if the Senate, and I, and I kind of think the Senate will come up with something in the next week or so, um, if not, we get to that question of, uh, you know, the president's, and that is, you know, should, should Republicans pass a repeal apart from um, replace and then work on a replacement after the fact? I would say if we could do that, um, that would force the issue, and you would get a lot more, well, you'd get Democrats buying in a little more because now you would have... A, you know, basically a, a complete repeal or close to a complete repeal of Obamacare, and they have a little more incentive to help with a solution. And so that's still, you know, that's still a possible outcome of all of this. But uh, I, I share t some of Tyler's frustration. And again, I, I think that the fact that we had 
you know, seven years of hearings in the House probably helped us get a little bit more of a running start. 701-293-9000 if you want to ask Congressman Kramer a question. 888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. I, I know it's a little bit hard for you to comment because obviously you're in the House and this issue is in the Senate right now because the House has passed have passed your bill. But right. eventually, you know, this, this issue, I mean, the, the House and the Senate are going to have to reconcile. That's what do you right. think of Senator Ted Cruz's proposal? And I haven't seen a ton of details on it, but it's it's almost I heard somebody describe it as if you like your Obamacare, you can keep your Obamacare. And it was something along the lines where if if, if, it, if an insurance company is offering one Obamacare qualifying plan in, in a given right. state, that they can then offer a, a whole bunch of plans that, that don't qualify for Obamacare. So that way yeah. people have an option that they could sign up for that Obamacare qualifying plan if they want it. But if they wanted to sign up for other sorts of plans, those would be available as well. Sure. I really well, liked that idea. Yeah. I, I, does that have legs? Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. It may. And it's frankly, Rob, and this is just politically speaking, um, I think in, in a moment like this where there, there is, a, I don't want to call it necessarily a void, but where there are lots of things on the table, some of them much more generous than, than the Republican plan, some of them less generous than the Republican plan, but all of them in the mix. I, I think this this is a moment when people like a Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, I think, has a similar plan, or maybe he and he and Senator Cruz are working on theirs together. Um, you, you did, uh, Bill Cassidy, is, who's a physician senator from um, uh, from Louisiana, a friend of mine, former House member, he has another plan that's it's different altogether from that. His, he and Susan Collins have one. I think this is the moment when thoughts like that, ideas like that, sort of do surface and get some legs, to use your your, your terminology. The, the question I have about this, about Senator Cruz and, and Senator Lee's idea of, of offering a, you know, if you like your Obamacare, you can keep it plan, is what I think that would do is, I, again, it's, I, this is just sort of my theory on it, but it looks to me like it would sort of drive a, a, a real, um, you know, a pool of, of, you know, really, you know, people whose, whose costs are very, very high. So you'd end up with this high-cost, high-risk sort of pool that would be the Obamacare pool, and then everything else in the in the individual market would work work more like a true private sector capitalist market, which is the goal of the Republican plan. But if you want to call it your Obamacare plan, you can keep it. So be it. The thing I would worry about is that we just want to make sure that the safety net is secure for those people. I believe it would require a significant subsidy to keep those plans afloat. And and you could argue that's what our plan does, and it, it, it sort of does. But, but maybe Senator Cruz and Senator Lee, have, maybe they're onto something here that would have a little more market appeal. So, um, you know, again, I'm I, like you. I know about as many details as I've just shared. Yeah. But that was my initial sort of philosophical thought on it. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, at the end of the day, I think we just gotta we gotta let people be able to choose. You're right. I mean, I think that's the problem. That's if right. People that's, aren't that's empowered to choose. Yeah, and that's, no, that's where we're gonna know, get to. You know, when you build a, a plan or, or a, a you know policy on a mandate, you've taken choice out of the formula, and and when that mandate becomes a, a, a monopoly, which is we have now in forty forty percent of the counties in this country. Um, then you've really taken uh, the ability to choose away, which is why you, then you take competition out of the mix, and that's why you see a 100% premium increase in the last four years. Kevin, thanks for your time. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Rob. That's Congressman Kevin Kramer. joins us here every Wednesday for uh, your take, your comments, your questions. 
We'll be back right after this break. 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. This is the Rob Report on 970 WDAY. Don't go away. Welcome back. Rob Report here on 970 WDAY. Jay Thomas show straight ahead next hour. I'll be uh, joining Jay for the first part of that show. 701-293-9000, If you want to join the program, you can also email me, talk at WDAY.com. Sean messages, the Republicans had seven years, give or take, to have a plan together to repeal Obamacare. Why didn't they have one ready to go once Trump was inaugurated? Did they not think he would win? So there wasn't a reason to have one or something else. It's frankly a bit embarrassing. I, you know, that's that's exactly the question that Tyler had earlier in the program. And, you know, I, I, I guess it's a fair point. I mean, it's it's why weren't Republicans working on this in the background? And I, I thought Congressman Kramer made a really good point when he said you know, the the House Republicans were made fun of for all of that time they spent developing legislation and repealing Obamacare when President Obama was president, knowing that they couldn't get it through the Senate, knowing that they didn't have a, have the votes to override a presidential veto, and they were mocked for doing it. And yet, I think Congressman Kramer has a point when I, you know, it, it prepared them for when now they're in a position to actually implement policy. They were a little bit more prepared for it. Now, that being said, I, I'm not sure the the ACHA is or whatever the hell the acronym is, I forget what it was, maybe I got that wrong, the House health care bill, I'm not sure that that's, you know, perfect on its own, but at least it's something, I, and, and that's the thing, we, we get so caught up, and it's it's frustrating, because it seems to me we're, we're, we're trying to pass one gigantic bill that's going to fix everything, right, and I think that's part of the problem, is getting there, I, I mean, well, I don't understand why we can't chip away at this, why can't we carve out because Obamacare did a lot of different things. I mean, you have the mandates as policy. You have the health care exchanges as policy. I mean, why not go down the list, pick and choose places, and do it piece by piece by piece? Because it's it's seeming less likely by the day that we're going to get to a point where we could pass one massive bill that's going to repeal Obamacare and replace it with something else or or fix Obamacare or or do whatever it is that I guess needs doing. I mean, it seems to me most people in Washington, D.C., even most Democrats agree the status quo is not good. Something's got to change. So why not start going down the list, finding the places, start with the places where you can get enough Democratic agreement to push things through? I mean, why does everything have to be this grand bargain? Why does everything have to be this this one giant bill that gets through? And why are we so sure that the federal government can fix all these problems anyway? I still kind of agree with what uh, North Dakota Insurance Commissioner John Godfrey said on this program uh, not so very long ago. Why not let the states take the lead again? Why not? Maybe maybe the answer is for the federal government to do less. And I, I know that's tough. You're not going to find a politician in Congress who wants to come out with the do less policy, right? Who wants to come out? I mean, no, nobody's going to say that because politically that's untenable. You can't campaign on that. You can't fundraise on that. But I'm thinking that's probably the solution. I'm not sure this is something we could fix from the federal level. 
Anyway, that's it for me today. You can always catch me right here on 970 WDAY, 1 to 2 p.m. or 24 hours a day, seven days a week at SayAnythingBlog.com. I'll be uh, sticking around for the Jay Thomas Show coming up next. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again. I say she never cared and that she never will.